Can identifying and understanding your friendship algorithm position you to enjoy more satisfying platonic relationships? I think our guest would answer yes. Today on the podcast for the third time, which at this point she should just co-host the show with me, is Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Her book, Platonic, is out right now. And let me flex a little bit. Since I got an early copy, I can assure you this is one to read. I am not exaggerating. I think it should be on every single person's bookshelf because with so much research showing how critical uh, the quality of our relationships is to a healthy and happy life, we all need access to this information. And so she's going to outline for us today what her friendship algorithm looks like, how understanding it can help you have aha moments about your friendship history and hope for the landscape of your friendship future. And so uh, I love the book so much and I love her work so much that we've decided to make Platonic the book selection for next month's book club read. You can learn more about that at betterfemalefriendships.com slash book club and join us. And Dr. Franco has so graciously uh, decided to join us during our book club discussion to host a bit of a fireside chat and do live Q&A. So I hope you go over there and check it out while you do that. In fact, I'll let the intro music play and then we're going to jump right into the interview. This is Friend Forward, the podcast. And if you're having girl problems, I got you. I'm your host, Danielle Byer-Jackson, a friendship coach, speaker, and author. And when it comes to the joys, complexities, and misconceptions surrounding female friendship, I am here to help you through it. Um, so, you know, you have this book coming out and I always say, I told you this the last time we chatted, I said, in my opinion, you are the, the blue check mark of friendship. Like you are the verification, TikTok, Instagram check mark. If you didn't say it, it ain't true. I wait until you say it. And I'm like, if she said it, it is confirmed. And so I know you have this, you know, book coming out called platonic. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and what people should expect? Sure. The thesis of platonic is who we are affects how we connect and how we've connected affects who we are, which means our personalities are not random. They are fundamentally shaped by our experiences of connection or disconnection, whether we're trusting, whether we're friendly, whether we're warm, whether we're cynical, right? Or, ne- or more negative personality. All of these things can be predicted by whether we've experienced safe and true connection in the past. And But the thing is, these previous experiences of connection affect who we are in ways that then are going to affect how we connect, continue to connect with people in the future, right? So if I become cynical and I go out there and try to connect with people, that's going to negatively impact my ability to connect with people. If I'm open and friendly, that's going to positively affect my, my experience of connecting with people. So the idea is that whether we connect with people isn't random. It's based on if we've developed a set of traits that all of us would have access to if we had not gone through our period previous baggage of trauma, small and big T, so small traumas, big traumas, and disconnection that has caused us to close up and protect ourselves. So what I'm kind of arguing in the book is almost like a, a rich get richer hypothesis. If we've connected in the past, we have these positive traits for connection and openness and warmth and friendliness and vulnerability that allow us to further connect. And unfortunately, if we've experienced negative experiences in our relationships, we develop traits that cause us to close up and disconnect from people. And my book is really guiding us in, well, how can we how can we learn to develop these qualities, even if we have these wounds that have closed us up from the past? 
You know, that's really powerful, you know, especially as you're talking about trust and wounds and past experiences, it, imme- it immediately makes me think of attachment styles. And I know that's like a, a hot topic right now. And as mental health becomes more and more mainstream, you've got everybody and their mom like self-diagnosing and assessing, <laughs> you know, so we're all walking around here knowing, you know, our, our attachment style and trying to get better. And you know, I know that we've we've had an episode before on the subject, and I know people might have a working knowledge, but could you start by giving us like a like your one to two sentence explanation of what attachment styles are and then how they play a role in, in friendship? Because I feel like I often hear it discussed in the context of familial relationships. But if you could just give us a working definition and then tell us how it's impacting our friendships. Absolutely. So our attachment styles are basically these templates that we have for our relationships that we form very early in life. And you're right, often they're talked about in terms of a romantic relationship. My book is actually about how we can become securely attached in our friendships. Mm. And secure attachment style means that you've had positive experiences in your past and you're open to giving and receiving love from other people. You're a super friend, basically. Secure people, they're better at initiating, they're better at maintaining friendships, working through conflict, all the things we want. Anxiously attached people, they fear abandonment. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when we think we'll be rejected, we become closed off and withdrawn and then people actually reject us. Um, Avoidant people don't trust people. So they fear intimacy and they keep everybody at a distance. People feel like, I don't actually know who you are. It's very hard to get close to you. And as you know, we're talking about self-fulfilling prophecies. All these attachment styles tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Because the anxious people in fearing abandonment do all these things to prevent abandonment that then cause abandonment. Like I said, like withdrawing, be the one to cut it off first, not bringing up issues. Or finally, when you do, you sort of attack because you tried to push it away this whole time. You know, these avoided people, they selectively interpret the world in a way that reflects their attachment style, right? If someone does something nice for them, they're like, oh, they want something out of me. And that's the truth that sits with them. They're not able to take in love. They're not able to take in people's appreciation, right? If someone's vulnerable with them, they see it as, you know, this person is threatening my sense of independence instead of the sort of inherent feelings of connection that come with vulnerability. So that's why our attachment styles can be really difficult to get out of because they cause us to approach the world with a confirmation bias where we're looking for things that match our pre-existing template. And I'm sorry, Danielle, that was definitely longer than two sentences. No, but that, that was good. I'm sure people are listening like, yes, go on. So no, that's good for us to kind of understand. Okay. So this is how it works. And these are some examples of the impact it might have. So, you know, I hear that and I, I think I would like to think I'm a relatively optimistic person, but I can't help but wonder you know, is there any hope for the person who knows, God, I know I, I, I'm avoidant. That's just how I am. Is there hope for that person to move toward more secure attachments? Yeah. So here's how I kind of look at attachment. First of all, absolutely. You can change your attachment. I have changed my attachment style. Um, this book is all about, you know, evidence-based ways that we could change our attachment style. And so what we have to do, though, this is the scariest thing, right? I think of attachment style as a series of algorithms that we have programmed in our brain. Mm. Anxious people are like, if I reach out to you, you're going to reject me, right? If I bring up an issue, you're going to abandon me. Um, If you, I'm going to like be super vulnerable to test you and your relationships to see if you won't abandon me. There's just all of these if-then statements that we have in our brain that affect our actions and our behaviors. Avoidant people, if I'm vulnerable, you're going to use it against me, right? Um, 
you know, if I get close to you, you're going to threaten my sense of independence. You're not going to respect my boundaries. So the thing that you have to do is you have to test your algorithms. (laughs) Mm. And how do you test your algorithms is you do the thing that makes you very afraid. But not only that, once you do it, if the outcome is different than how you feared, you have to intentionally take in that safety. You have to savor it. You have to be able to acknowledge in your body, wow, this was different than what I expected. That, in, in as therapists, psychologists, we call it a corrective experience, where I have an experience that's different than what I might have assumed or what my history might have said to me. So for anxious people, what does that look like? That might look like you bringing up conflict in a calm and empathic way instead of always trying to pretend to not be hurt because you're afraid to bring it up or setting a boundary, right? Because you're thinking if I set a boundary with a friend, they're going to abandon me. And then noticing their response, they didn't freak out, right? They didn't get angry at me because the problem with attachment styles, if I'm anxious, I'm going to I'm gonna discount the fact that you said it was okay that I set that boundary. And I'm going to think to myself, oh, you're just saying that, right? I'm going to think to myself, oh, they don't actually mean that because that's what my internal template is telling me. So we're not actually taking in reality. You have to take in the reality afterward. For avoidant people, that looks like, let me actually practice being vulnerable, even though this makes me very afraid. With someone that feels the most safe to me out of everyone I've ever known, at least, you know, start smaller. And then let me take in their response as not being shaming. Let me acknowledge that. Let me savor that. So that can become part of my, my neural wiring. This is like how we, how we change our brains, how we change our nervous systems. But the biggest thing that I like to tell people, because I think this is what secure people do right. Um, and this has been my spiel for a long time. The biggest thing that securely attached people do right is that they assume people like them. They have that optimism. And when a situation is ambiguous, that's their assumption, right? So for example, I talked to someone who was more avoidantly attached. They were like, you know, my friend came to an event. They didn't sit next to me. Before she said she would have assumed, oh, this is my friend doesn't like me, right? Instead, she decided to assume this is an ambiguous situation. There may be another reason why she sat in that chair. So I'm going to just remember to assume my friend likes me, right? Or my friend doesn't respond to texts in in a period of time. I'm just going to assume that my friend likes me. When it's ambiguous, that's going to be my assumption unless I have concrete evidence otherwise. Wow. Okay. You know, sometimes I have to just stop and take a breath because sometimes it's heavy when you realize how much your personal stuff colors everything else, your relationship with other people, how you interpret things, and then ultimately your narrative of friendship itself. You know, people can't be trusted or my friends are my absolute everything. I would, you know, so we see kind of our interpretation and experience of friendship itself and how it is so um, impacted by our attachment style. Um Okay. Okay. And you know, you're, you, I like what you said, and I've heard you say it a couple of times and I think it's just like such a, a nice go-to gem, but you often say, you know, secure people assume that people like them. And I think so many of us, so many people, they want to lean into that. I want to believe that. Um, and I love what you're saying about the whole, you know, the idea of the algorithm and just try something and see if the outcome is different for those who really want to, earnestly try to do something that is, you know, different from their, their algorithm, but they fear rejection and they just think, God, I want to do that. But what if the person says no, what if they don't respond? What if they roll their eyes and walk away? You know, what are some insights for the person who feels like they are so chronically afraid of being rejected? Yeah. 
So how we change negative experiences and negative triggers is we find ways to access positive emotions within these negative experiences, right? So that they don't feel as devastating as they would have otherwise. So for rejection, I think that we can reframe rejection. Here's how I like to think of it. If someone rejects me, I still initiated and went out of my way to reach out to someone and experience that growth. I'm not in control of the outcome. I'm only in control of my behavior. So if I took that behavior, I have won, right? Because I've done what I could control no matter what the outcome is. And so even as you grieve the rejection, because I don't believe we should ever suppress our negative emotions, right? Rejection is hard for human, we're social creatures. Even as you grieve that rejection, I need you to also access the joy inherent in the experience. The joy is that you've pushed yourself to grow and there's no way that can be taken away from you. The second thing that I, I suggest for people that fear rejection is that you need to think about reaching out and initiating new relationships as aligning with your values, right? So if you value curating the life you want, curating the company that you want, if you're passive about who comes into your life, you will not achieve these high quality friendships, these high quality relationships, right? The people that find the friends that make them feel really whole and really amazing, they're intentional about seeking out those people. And so The idea here is that you're acting according to your values of living a life full of bountiful, wholesome, nourishing relationships that whether this specific instance gets you to that outcome or not, you're engaging in the behaviors that will get you there eventually if you continue to practice this. So I think it's helpful to remember, even though it can make us feel really bad, that we're also acting alongside our values. And there's a form of therapy that kind of talks about how you know, we shouldn't necessarily act alongside our, our triggers and our fears, but aside, we should act alongside our larger values. So thinking about um, initiating, reaching out, putting yourself out there as aligning with your larger values of connection, and you're acting within those values instead of your fears and your triggers. Oh, this is, um, this gives us hope. This gives us hope. And I really appreciate how you're speaking to the role that we can play in shaping our own friendship story. And I see a lot of conversation, I'm sure you do too, but about um, that that almost positions friendship as something that happens to us, the kind of people who come along and what they do to us. And, you know, it's hard to find friends. And, and so to hear about the things that are within our control, how we can be intentional about positioning ourselves to invite healthy connections. And if a situation does happen, that's ambiguous. Okay. I control over how I'm going to interpret this. Do I want to invite the person in by asking questions instead of assuming? And, you know, and, and do I want to put myself out there and say hello or let fear totally immobilize me? And so I hope, you know, one takeaway for people listening right now and, and what you just said is, is how much we can be empowered essentially by, you know, these like the bits of science you're telling us and, and this research to say, okay, science supports, you know, my maybe deep down stuff, deep down desire to start reaching out to people that it's a healthy thing, that it's productive, that rejection is inevitable, but it doesn't mean it doesn't signal I should stop doing it. It's just a part of life. Yes. And that's another part of the algorithm, right? Like we know from the science that we experience a negativity bias, which means all of our projections tend to be more cynical than the actual truth. Like you're actually, if you go for it and reach out to people, 
I think you'll be very surprised by how many people are open to you. You know, I can share the science here. There's a phenomenon called the liking gap where researchers found that when they paired strangers, strangers actually like them more than they think they they thought they would, more than they assumed. The beautiful mess effect, which is research that finds that when we're vulnerable, we think people are judging us less than they actually are. And we discount how they're seeing us positively as more authentic and honest. Recently, a study came out about how we text when we text a friend to rekindle the relationship, we tend to underestimate how much they'll value that, that rekindling and that reaching out. And, and then when we share affection towards friends, when we tend to predict that it'll come off as more awkward than it actually does and discount how positively our friend will receive it. And so there's all, this is what really helped. I mean, that's why I love research because it helped me correct my algorithm. <laughs> so oh, I was I like, no, yeah, knowing this research, I mean, it gives you the larger objective point of view that tells you like, in fact, the world is a lot safer than we think it is. But if we never test our assumption of unsafety, we'll never actually know that. Right, right. That we should see ourselves as connectors who are going to bravely act on our desire to be in companionship with other people, that we know that healthy friendships take time. And then everything you're saying about, you know, we weigh the negative so heavily but often don't give us much credit or possibility to all the possible positive things that could come from putting ourselves out there and just being satisfied with the connecting moment. I know sometimes um, that moment may not lead to a full friendship, but maybe it was just a really nice conversation. Can I somehow be content with a nice conversation? And hopefully after a series of these, some of those blossom into real meaningful friendships. Yeah. You know, I think I love what you're talking, how you're talking about this, Danielle, because I think you're talking about personality change, right? Like it's the personality change that undergirds our ability to connect with other people over time, right? Because again, we're not in control of the outcome, we're not in control of who we meet, we're not in control of whether there are people, right? But we know that over time, people that tend to have these qualities, people that tend to be better at initiating, they're going to be more likely to make more friends. People that tend to be more affectionate, people that tend to be more generous, they're going to be able to make more friends. And so I like, because that's the outcome you can control, right? Whether you find yourself becoming a more connecting person, more loving person, more initiating person, someone who makes other people feel like they belong. Because, you know, I think that's what's inherent to to me finding belonging is me making other people feel like they belong. And that's a personality change that, you know, again, it, it can't be taken away from you. And it's so powerful. And it's a lot more long-term, I think, than like, the friends we can make in these moments or the people that we might happen to meet in this couple of month period of time. If you could just get everyone in a room, like just all of us in a room, right? And you could just correct one misconception or give us one nugget of encouragement or something that you hear kind of floating around all the time and you want a chance to correct it. Like what's that one thing you feel like we're we're getting wrong about friendship or that we really need to hear about going out there and making healthy friendships? Um, I think one of the biggest ones is people thinking that friendship happens organically and waiting for people to just plop into their lives. Because we know from the research that that kind of thinking is actually related to being more lonely over time. I think it can be a self-protective thought because it's like, I'm not just putting myself out there. This is just going to come into my life. And I think a corollary of that is treating friendship like a relationship, right? Like, just like you got to go out there and cultivate your romantic relationships. You have to treat, do the same thing for your friendship because a relationship is a relationship. And that also means friendship isn't something that I'm like, well, 
you know, this is going to be a once a, once a month networking thing. And that's what a fulfilling friendship means to me. Or if my friend needs me, I don't necessarily need to show up because this should be positive vibes only or good only that friendship is going to have to be a, um, a responsibility. If you want close friendships, you have to show up during their times of need. You have to celebrate them when they experience successes. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, I guess my overall message is like friendships should be a priority. There's no reason friendships have to be trivial or a second-class relationship in your life. And you will only know how much they will be profound and meaningful for you once you take the steps to actually form those deep friendships. As your new official friendship coach, here's your homework. Listen closely. I want you to reflect on what Dr. Franco shared about our quote-unquote algorithm. How has yours been shaped and how has that impacted the way that you engage with people moving forward? I want you to take some time to think about that, to make that connection, and to see what small changes you can make today to push against your natural algorithm to gradually, slowly but surely, adapt it to function in a healthier way so that you can, by extension, experience healthier friendships. You can learn more about Dr. Franco and her work on Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco or on her website, drmarissagfranco.com. That's M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. Until then, I'll be right here rooting for you always on your ongoing journey toward better female friendships. Until next time.